And so what we ultimately see are cracks within Putin's internal security um, apparatus that suggest more fragility than what I think most outsiders would have thought prior to the uh, 2022 invasion of Ukraine. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. I am Leo Kamer, and I am joined by my co-host Ben Elhadad. The Wagner Group, a private military company, was fighting in Ukraine on behalf of the Russian government until late June, when the group's commander, Yevgeny Prigozhin, launched a mutiny and began marching toward Moscow. Before the Wagner Group reached the city, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko negotiated a deal between Prigozhin and the Russian government to end the rebellion. In this episode, we'll explore the tensions between Wagner and the Ministry of Defense, what will become of the Wagner Group after the mutiny, and what the rebellion spells for the conflict in Ukraine. Dr. Christopher Faulkner joins us today to discuss the Wagner Group mutiny. Christopher M. Faulkner is an assistant professor of national security affairs in the College of Distance Education at the U.S. Naval War College. His research focuses on militant recruitment, private military companies, and civil military relations. Before we begin the episode, Chris asked us to include the following preface. The views expressed are my own and don't represent my institutions. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Hello, Chris. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. To start us off, how did the Wagner Group originate and how does it differ from the Russian military? Yeah, this is a, a great question. Uh, the origin, the inception of the Wagner Group maybe dates back to around 2010 um, and the Kremlin's desire to expand its global footprint and reassert itself as a, uh, a major player in world politics. And I think that one of the ways in which Wagner became the conduit to do so or uh, an entity to do so was thinking about ways that, that Russia could carve out influence without being directly involved in different places around the world. And so in a general staff meeting, I think the story goes that Wagner was kind of cooked up um, by some former intelligence and special operators, intelligence agents and special operators from um, the Russian military and subsequently uh, became a formidable force for Russia's foreign policy, both in Ukraine in 2014 and uh, subsequently in places like Syria and Central African Republic and Mali. Now it's different than the regular army is you'll note the term private military corporation or company. Uh, Nothing about the organization is truly private, as with most institutions within Russia. The government has a significant stake in the organization. And prior to the mutiny of June 23rd and 24th of this year, exerted a lot of influence over Wagner operations and the places that it was participating uh, as a security provider for various governments. Uh, so when we think about how the Wagner Group is different than the regular military. Its original construction really consisted of former military special operators and members of Russia's intelligence community. And since it's kind of expanded to allow in a variety of different individuals to carry out Russian foreign policy on the proverbial cheap. It doesn't do the exact same things that the Russian army does. It does some things in kind of this, what we'll call the gray zone environment where it's participating to provide forms of security assistance to clients around the world, whether that be something like 
personal regime security in a, in a place like Central African Republic, whether it be counterinsurgent training in a place like Mali, but it isn't the direct Russian military doing so. Um, so it offered this facade of plausible deniability that was really valuable for Russia. And so you, Ukraine, the war in Ukraine is obviously past uh, the so-called gray zone, and yet uh, Wagner Group is, is still present there. So what is what is, uh, what is the group doing there as opposed to the Russian military? How does its role there differ? Yeah, I think the best way to think about it, its participation in, in the Ukraine, uh, Russia's special military operation in Ukraine is one of a force multiplier. For a whole bunch of different reasons, Wagner was never intended to be a force used alongside the Russian military in Ukraine. Um, Instead, it was designed to be utilized abroad in other other conflict theaters um, for Russians, Russia's broader geopolitical ambitions. Um, but because of the poor strategy and the miscalculation of how the war in Ukraine would unfold, uh, Wagner was was more or less invited in by the Russian uh, political elite and military to try to uh, rectify some of the challenges that the Ministry of Defense was facing and carrying out its war in Ukraine. So I think that's an important kind of distinction and way to think about how, how Wagner emerged as a, a I guess, a, a major player in the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, is that it wasn't really ever intended to be there, um, given Russia's strategic calculations that's, that, that were proven to be uh, widely misguided. Wagner Group's attempted coup, if you can call it that, seemed to start quickly but abruptly ended could you take us through the series of events that comprise the coup? Yeah, this is to a, uh, a fluid situation, and I don't know that all of the information is uh, is out there. But I guess the general through line is uh, to to kind of understand Yevgeny Prigozhin's gripe with the Ministry of Defense in Russia. It's important to think about um, this being not a flash in the pan moment, but more of a a conflict that has been brewing for several years now, dating back to uh, shortly after Wagner's inception in 2014 to really hitting a crux in 2018 with Wagner being attacked by U.S. special operators in Syria, uh, an event that I won't say that the Russian Ministry of Defense allowed to happen, but certainly didn't try to stop. And that created a lot of friction between Prigozhin and uh Sergei Shoigu and Gerasimov, the uh, Minister of Defense and the Chief of Russia's General Staff. And so there's a long history of friction between these individuals. Uh, we've obviously seen uh, anyone who's followed the ongoing war in Ukraine, Prigozhin's propaganda, uh, lambasting the Russian Ministry of Defense activities in Ukraine, and uh, really condemning their execution of the war almost claiming that Wagner could do it better and specifically that he could do it better. So I think that's kind of the framing to think about how this, this mutiny slash coup came into existence. The triggering event is what is most interesting maybe in this case. Uh, Prigozhin claims that uh, Wagner camp was actually bombed by the Russian military, resulting in uh, two dozen or more casualties of Wagner personnel. And that was kind of the last straw. The subtext here being, if we look at this through a timeline lens, 
Uh, July 1 was a hard deadline for all private military contractors to sign a contract with the Russian Ministry of Defense. And so coupled with the reported uh, bombing of a Wagner camp by the Russian military and the looming deadline of essentially having all of your personnel uh, usurped from you uh, via this contract with the Russian Ministry of Defense kind of set Prigozhin off. Um, and that's maybe a little bit of a, a simplistic kind of through line, uh, but I think important to think about broader context of how these events transpire um, significant grievances amongst one part of the uh, Russian security force, if you will, in this case, Wagner. And so as we think about the series of events uh, leading to the coup, I mean, we essentially have wild variation in terms of the number of Wagner personnel reported to have participated directly from Prigozhin. His argument is that he had 25,000 plus Wagner militants uh, marching to Moscow. They took control of the Southern Military District Headquarters. Uh, who was there, I think, is still a little bit of a question mark. Um, but uh, from my understanding, this is where they're running us, uh, running the, the war in Ukraine. And so we have a pretty uh, significant show of force by Wagner mercenaries in, in, this, in this instance that leads to uh, serious concerns about what perceived, was perceived to be a mutiny turning into a coup or an effort to overthrow Putin. I think that's a little bit misunderstood both in major media outlets and in trying to refine the difference between a mutiny and a coup. And that, that's, that's something that maybe is a little too cumbersome to go into now. But the general idea is what Prigozhin wanted in this case was to kick out the, those military and political elites who are running the war, specifically Sergei Shoigu and uh, Valery Gerasimov. And those two individuals he sees as um, direct threats to Wagner and uh, incompetent in executing the war. Um, so that was really, I think, the, uh, I guess, this, the series of events comprising, uh, as you've said it, uh, something that maybe looks like a coup, but might be something else. Mm -hmm. Why do you think Prigozhin stopped the coup? Uh, coups are hard. And I'll say it this way, mutinies or coups, whichever term we want to go with, they're difficult to, to execute. They're, very, they're oftentimes not successful. And so the consequences for failure are, are quite damning, to say the least. And so one of the things that Prigozhin didn't have and maybe miscalculated on was a significant number of defections from the regular Russian army. In other words, there weren't individuals swapping jerseys and choosing to join Wagner, though some reporting suggests that there were members of the military that were either A, standing by to let it happen, or B, maybe even actually participating in the, the push. But regardless, the likelihood of Prigozhin actually overthrowing Putin or achieving what he wanted in terms of the removal of Shoigu and Gerasimov uh, was, was kind of I won't say there was there was a non-zero probability, but the probability wasn't high. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason why he stopped it is um, the likelihood of success became far less likely as the event continued to transpire. Um, that's kind of what we know on the surface. Behind the scenes, um, I'm sure there's far more information available that uh, none of us will ever be privy to in terms of backdoor backroom deals that were going on. Uh, to try to quell Prigozhin's dissent. Um, 
but I think that the short story is he just didn't see a viable path to success. Mm-hmm. And uh, do we have any idea what's going to become of Prigozhin and the Wagner group? Wagner, sorry. No, no, this is a great question. And, and I think that uh, I, I hesitate to be too speculative, but I have a, a few different thoughts about this. One, most everyone has seen that uh, Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, you know, became this master deal maker between uh, the Putin regime and Prigozhin and essentially said that, hey, I'm granting this individual a place to come live in exile. He can have the Wagner group here in Belarus. He can train my military. Um, and apparently, you know, that was the deal that got brokered to kind of stop the uh, escalation of hostilities uh, between Wagner and the Ministry of Defense. Um, but just yesterday, Lukashenko said that Prigozhin's back in Russia. Wagner hasn't actually left Ukraine. Um, so there's still a lot of um, ambiguity surrounding what is going on right now, let alone what is to happen. In addition, just the other day, there was reporting that Wagner personnel and the Central African Republic um, were being shuffled out of the Central African Republic and transited back to Moscow. It's unclear, A, how many personnel were actually leaving, um, and B, what they'll actually do in Russia, whether these are individuals that decided to sign contracts with their Ministry of Defense to fight in Russia, or whether there's just a reshuffling of Wagner personnel and these other theaters that it operates. Um, So I think that Wagner or a version of it continues to to live post this Prigozhin mutiny slash coup. Um, I am less certain about what Prigozhin's role will be with these private military and security companies looking ahead. I think that he's in a precarious situation. I don't actually know how much power he yields and what his leverage is to continue to uh, bargain with the Russian Ministry of Defense. Um, I think if you're Putin, uh, it's very risky to continue to empower somebody like Prigozhin. But at the same time, this is where the question mark kind of uh, comes to the forefront, which is how much support has Prigozhin been able to cultivate within uh, the Russian political and military sphere. And um, there's a lot of variability in the reporting on this. Um, but either way, I think that it's a dangerous game if you continue to, to empower this individual. Nonetheless, it's probably, and I'll say it this way, the Wagner model is probably here to stay um, in some form or fashion, whether that's a new individual taking over Wagner, whether it's Wagner being rebranded similar to what we've seen with Western private military and security companies in times past, where their reputation becomes too tarnished to continue with the namesake that they started with and subsequently move into a different kind of rebranding experiment. Mm -hmm. One outstanding question uh, about the mutiny is whether uh, it will affect Russia's fighting capabilities in Ukraine. And this may, of course, be dependent on uh, to what extent uh, Wagner soldiers are are contracted to the Russian military, or to what extent it stays. So, so that's the question I'm going to ask: is uh, how will Russia's fighting capabilities in Ukraine be affected by this? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question um, because it gets the the heart of the matter when it came to Wagner, which is how many personnel did they actually have in Ukraine? And last summer. Uh, major media outlets uh, kind of picked up on the story that Wagner is recruiting from prisons, 
they're uh, essentially offering uh, convicts an opportunity of freedom um, if they were able to survive on the front lines in Bakhmut. And subsequently, Wagner forces were augmented dramatically. We're talking 50,000 to 70,000 fighters coming from penal colonies. Um, As I noted earlier, there's some discussion here that Prigozhin uh, put out there himself. There were 25,000 Wagner personnel mutinying, uh, participating in the mutiny rather, uh, on June 23, 24. And so to your question, I'm not entirely sure how how large the Wagner force in Ukraine actually is. Um, but even if it is on the upper bound of 25 or 50,000 people, um, as you've alluded to, it's unclear how many of them will remain distinct from the Russian Ministry of Defense. In other words, how many of them were forced into signing contracts last week? How many of them decided not to sign contracts and will no longer participate in the war at all? Um, or if there will still be some place for Wagner on the front lines in Ukraine. I think the hard part in running a war is while you're playing this kind of game of chess with your own personnel, Wagner and your ministry and the regular army, um, it's dangerous to just kind of uh, cut off a force at the knees uh, because it can create problems in, on the front lines, especially in the face of the Ukrainian counteroffensive that seems to be ongoing. And so... I don't know that it has a dramatic impact on their fighting capabilities. I think it's still a a looming question, Um, but I'd be hesitant to say that it's going to be a dramatic effect uh, if there are, uh, if the Wagner group is disempowered completely um, on the front lines in Ukraine. And as you mentioned earlier, Wagner has a presence in countries like Mali and the Central African Republic. Could you talk a little bit about what Wagner was doing in those countries? Yeah, I think this is where Wagner made its bread and butter. And I say that is it was never designed to do what it's doing in Ukraine or what it's done in Ukraine. Um, it was designed to be a, an organization that provided security and military services to uh, a plethora of different buyers, um, but oftentimes for things like personal security for the head of a regime or uh, security force assistance and training and counter counterinsurgent and counterterrorism operations. And so I think that's what's going on in places like Central African Republic, where it was first deployed, um, then Mali later in December of 2021. Uh, what it's doing in both of these places is propping up what I'll call semi, in some cases, semi-liberal regimes, in other cases, uh, military juntas in Mali, and providing them some form of regime security. Uh, in exchange for access to natural resources, um, lucrative contracts, and uh, prospects of, uh, and always hanging in front of them, prospects of improved relations with Moscow. And so in a place like Central African Republic, it became infamous for the success it had in repelling a rebel offensive in uh, 2020 that kind of laid the proof of concept of Wagner as a counterinsurgent force. And it'd be unwise to, you know, assume that other countries weren't watching what was happening in the Central African Republic, a la Mali, which brought Wagner in uh, after relations with the French soured to a point where they were unsalvageable. And Wagner became the uh, counterinsurgent force 
that would help augment Mali's capabilities in fighting jihadist groups that it's been struggling to, to deal with for the past decade or so. Um, and that's really what it's doing in places like this. Smaller footprints in terms of the number of personnel, regime security, and counterterrorism. And how do you think this recent mutiny will affect those operations? Yeah, I think, as I noted uh, uh, just previously, some folks have been uh, reportedly leaving Central African Republic. Um, whether this is, as I mentioned, a drawdown of the force in uh, Wagner personnel in Central African Republic, or whether they're going to redeploy new new forces, or whether this is individuals who have decided to join the regular Russian military to fight in Ukraine um, remains to be seen. But I, I don't think that the Kremlin can stop Wagner operations cold turkey in Central African Republic and Mali. Um, a, it's been too geopolitically important. Um, it's given the Kremlin a lot of leverage over these countries. Um, it's given the Kremlin access. It's, uh, I'll say, been valuable in other ways, both tangibly in terms of resource extraction, but it, um, intangibly in terms of uh, kind of bad-mouthing the U.S. and uh, European counterparts in a place like Mali um, and kind of giving Russia a sense of legitimacy um, in the eyes of those buyers um, in, in Central African Republic and Mali. So the short story is I, I don't know that it's wise or prudent for the Kremlin to stop Wagner operations, but what they do to rebrand them or repackage them as something else, or maybe even get involved directly. In other words, Moscow sending its you know own uh, military operators there, as opposed to relying on this private entity, um, could be something that could happen looking ahead. But I think that there will be some form of uh, Russian engagement in these places for the foreseeable future. And so you mentioned earlier that the coup may not, or I'm sorry, the mutiny may not have been a a direct attempt to to overthrow Putin, and yet uh, many people have written and claimed that uh, this mutiny weakened Putin or showed that Putin's regime was weak. Do you think that the mutiny will pose consequences for the stability of Putin's regime? Yeah, that's uh, that's the million dollar question. Um, I think. I think it's difficult to, to forecast whether or not uh, this is the start of the end, if you will, for Putin. Um, what I think it does illustrate is a severe internal security failure, both in terms of uh, the Kremlin's intelligence bureau's inability to forecast what was happening and prevent the uh, the mutiny that oh you know the mutiny spiraling into a coup of sorts. Um, and I think that when we think. We think about the security forces and the National Guard's ability to actually quell and stop uh, Wagner's march to Moscow. Um, that was lackluster, to say the least. And so what we ultimately see are cracks within Putin's internal security um, apparatus that suggest more fragility than what I think most outsiders would have thought prior to the uh, 2022 invasion of Ukraine. Um, it's shown that uh, a conflict like a major land war against a formidable, um, a formidable state creates serious problems at home. Uh, and if you will, the Game of Thrones in Russia becomes uh, 
more apparent, uh, more difficult to reconcile internal challenges and difficulties, um, empowers individuals that you didn't mean to empower, like Prigozhin, um, and eliminates the facade of stability that Putin's tried so hard to uh, promote and propagate over the last uh, three decades. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't know that it's the end of Putin, but I think that it's a crack in his regime that he will find difficult to recover from um, without appeasing uh, challengers, if you will. Do you buy that Putin's regime is actually less stable than was thought before? Um, like, did do you think that this mutiny proved that? Yeah, I think that it caught. I think it caught a lot of individuals, both within and outside of Russia, by surprise um, that there could actually be a legitimate challenger to the regime's stability um, in ways that. I mean, I'll look at it this way: in, in ways that the regime was kind of forced to negotiate with a private military actor that it a created and b empowered. And so I don't think that most individuals with the exception of a few analysts saw that kind of writing on the wall uh, and those that were kind of forecasting uh, that there was some friction or instability within Putin's regime were often cast aside as kind of a little bit of the conspiracy theorist, if you will. And so, yeah, I, I, I think where I'm sitting from, um, yeah, Putin has put forth a facade of um, significant stability that uh, that window dressing has kind of been taken down. And so I don't know that I'll uh, put myself in the basket to say, hey, Putin's regime was always incredibly secure, though I think it it was quite durable. Um, but I will say that the um, the narrative that it's unbreakable has been uh, proven to be false. And so that's kind of uh, maybe a non-answer in some ways, but uh, I don't think it spells his demise, but I do think it spells uh, a willingness and a need for him and uh, those players those within the broader uh, political sphere uh, to maybe negotiate with folks that they never wanted to. All right. Well, Chris, uh, thank you for coming on to talk about the Wagner Group and its recent mutiny. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, it's an interesting case to follow um, with a lot of questions still remaining to be answered. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.